Testimony from multiple MPs has exposed how the government blackmail MPs to get their way. Is a light finally being shone on the sinister machinations that take place in Westminster? The job of a party whip is to get backbenchers to vote in line with the party leader. Officially, they do this by persuading potential rebels of the wisdom of any policy and by responding to any concerns they might have. Unofficially, it's well known this often involves threats to stymie a rebel's career advancement, threats to block their pet policy priorities, or even threats to reveal embarrassing secrets about them to the media. To Westminster insiders, that's not huge news. What is new, though, is having an MP who's willing to speak about these dirty tricks publicly. William Ragg is the chair of the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Select Committee. On Thursday, he made this extraordinary statement. In recent days, a number of members of Parliament have faced pressures and intimidation from members of the government because of their declared or assumed desire for a vote of confidence in the party leadership of the Prime Minister. It is, of course, the duty of the Government Whip's office to secure the government's business in the House of Commons. However, it is not their function to breach the ministerial code in threatening to withdraw investments from members of Parliament's constituencies which are funded from the public purse. Additionally, reports to me and others of members of staff at Number 10 Downing Street, special advisers, government ministers and others encouraging the publication of stories in the press seeking to embarrass those who they suspect of lacking confidence in the Prime Minister is similarly unacceptable. The intimidation of a Member of Parliament is a serious matter. Moreover, the reports of which I am aware would seem to constitute blackmail. As such, it would be my general advice to colleagues to report these matters to the Speaker of the House of Commons and the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, and they are also welcome to contact me at any time. Intimidation, blackmail and an instruction for concerned MPs to contact the Metropolitan Police. It all sounds incredibly dramatic. The most explosive claim there, though, was probably the one about threats to withdraw funding from rebel constituencies. It was an allegation backed up by Labour's newest MP, Christian Wakeford. I was threatened that I would not get the score for Radcliffe if I didn't vote one particular way. Um, this is a, a town that's not had um, a high school for the best part of 10 years. And how do you feel when holding back the regeneration of a town for a vote? It, it, it didn't sit comfortably and, and that was really that kind of starting to question my place where I was uh, and ultimately to, to where I am now. So if Christian Wakeford had voted against the government, it wouldn't just be his career that suffered, but also the life chances of people living in Radcliffe. Today, another former Tory MP, Ben Howlett, also came forward with similar testimony. Obviously, when I was campaigning as a marginal constituency MP uh, for a project, it was a, a link road, and people remember that in my own constituency, uh, I was trying to get government funding for it. And of course, during the Brexit rebellions, uh, then the whipping operation involved uh, me being told uh, by a whip that if I ended up rebelling and continuing to rebel, then I would uh, lose out funding for that particular scheme. And, you know, if the Prime Minister is trying to keep his own position right now, he needs to be winning friends not sending his lackeys out there to try and make a uh, case for him, which obviously is ending up backfiring. 
Boris Johnson has remained fairly quiet throughout the controversy, only popping up to offer his now traditional see no evil, hear no evil response. I've, I've seen no evidence, heard no evidence to support any of those uh, allegations. Anushka, and what I'm focused on is what we're doing to deal with the number one priority of the British people, which is uh, coming through COVID. So don't blame me. I have absolutely no idea what's going on. It's an excuse from the Prime Minister we're now very used to hearing. As for that question of evidence, if Boris Johnson hasn't yet seen any, that could soon change. The Times report that a number of MPs are considering releasing text messages and secretly recorded phone calls where threats were made. So how much does this matter and will these revelations do any damage to the government? Well, on the one hand, I think it's fair to say that rightly or wrongly, people have limited sympathy for MPs and others working in Westminster. Bullying scandals in Parliament rarely capture the public imagination because people see it as elites being unpleasant to other elites. It's all divorced from their everyday lives. Recent history is testament to this. It's clear about which scandals do make a difference. The revelations in 2009 about MPs claiming everything from second homes to hot tubs on expenses showed a political class taking taxpayers for a ride. Most recently, the Partygate scandal showed that Boris Johnson's Downing Street think they play by a different set of rules to everyone else. But there are some aspects of this story that do perhaps fit that bill. If you live in Radcliffe, you might rightly, be outraged that the Tories were willing to make a good education for your children a mere bargaining chip in a parliamentary game. How much does that suggest they respect ordinary people's needs, hopes and desires? One more dark aspect of Westminster whipping is that threats to reveal dirt on MPs demands that whips gather those secrets in the first place. As we'll talk about later this evening, it's a recipe for covering up often appalling behaviour. Finally, we might surmise that the character of the people who govern us does actually matter. I'd prefer to be ruled over by empaths than sociopaths. And the realities described by Rag et al. suggest Westminster might be a more hospitable place for the latter. Continuing on the theme of pop psychology, my colleague Ash Sarkar perhaps expressed it best on NavarraMedia.com today. She wrote that people who get into politics are objectively dweebs. But joining the whip's office is a thrilling opportunity to metamorphosize from a once bullied nerd to a fearsome, seizing tormentor. Bittersweet in the YouTube chat says, it's astounding to me that this has gotten out. That really shows how damaged the Tories are as they're usually very good at keeping their dirty laundry out of sight. Now that's a super important point, as I sort of suggested in, in the introduction, that this happens, people have you know, suspected for a while. I think people, journalists who work in Westminster have known it's happened for a while. Sometimes they comment on it, but it is quite difficult to make a story out of these things unless you've got someone who is on record and willing to say that's what happened. You have enough people now who have completely lost faith in the Prime Minister that they're willing to, to come clean about these things. Obviously, it's going to be a much, much bigger deal if someone can produce this evidence, if someone can produce some screenshots of text messages where people were threatened with compromising information being revealed about them. Obviously, there's a reason why you might not share that screenshot if they mention said compromising information in the text. I think even more explosive would be if anyone had been stupid enough to write down a threat about withdrawing funding from a secondary school or, or any other project in a local constituency. So we'll, we'll have to see um, if any of that comes out in the coming days and 
weeks. Nick D in the YouTube chat says, are the blackmail allegations a dead cat? So for anyone who's not aware, the idea of a dead cat is there is an issue which is dominating the news. The government wants to sort of change the terms of the argument. So it says something kind of irrelevant, potentially not true, which gets people arguing about it. Now, the traditional dead cat here is the claim about the £350 million for the NHS on the bus. And that was a dead cat because Dominic Cummings saw that everyone was talking about, you know, the potential economic damage this could do, or is this a right-wing reactionary project? He threw out that very bold claim, which was not particularly well evidenced. But what did that get people doing? It got people debating how much more money would there be for the NHS if there were Brexit? So we sort of say, it doesn't matter whether or not this is true, everyone's talking about it. And I think the phrase comes potentially from Linton Crosby. If you're at a dinner party, whatever you're talking about, if you throw a dead cat on the table, the thing you're going to be talking about next is that dead cat. You can't help but talk about it. You can't help for that to dominate the public conversation. Let's go on to the next aspect of this story we're going to cover. With accusations of Tories blackmailing and bullying MPs all over the news, we decided to have a dig into the history of the grim tactics used to cajole MPs into voting with the government. A great source here is the 1995 BBC documentary Westminster's Secret Service. The programme interviewed a number of former whips, and some of the admissions were astounding. Here are two former whips explaining the role of the black book of MPs' secrets. In the Tory Whip's office, they keep records of the personal problems of their MPs in what's called the Black Book or Dirt Book, which is kept in the Chief Whip's safe. I mean, the Dirt Book was just, just a, little, a little book which, where you had to write down in uh, varying things that you knew or heard about people. But what sort of thing would you put in the Dirt Book? Oh, well, you, you, you can take a very good guess. I don't think I should go any further and say you could take a very good guess of all the sorts of things that you'd happen in life. You would have a good spread of them that would be happening to varying people that you'd heard about or knew about or maybe true. Well, scandalous stories, I suppose, which uh, possibly are, are not at all accurate. But you say... Member Bloggs told me at dinner this evening that um, Member Waltons is um, seeing a lot of somebody's wife and not his own and this sort of thing. That would go in. What was the purpose of putting that sort of thing in the black book? So that we knew everything about everybody. Why did you want to do that? Because we were a very efficient organisation. We were, I don't know whether all whips offices are. And um, when you are trying to persuade a member that he should vote the way he didn't want to vote, which is part of your job, which, which is a great part of your job on a controversial issue, um, it is possible to suggest that um, perhaps it would be not in his interest if um, people knew something or other. Very mildly. But... That all sounded pretty sinister, but the only concrete example given there was of an MP having what I presume would be a consensual affair. Tim Fortescue's next admission, however, was far more worrying. Anyone with any sense who was in trouble would come to the whips and... and tell them the truth and say, no, this, I'm in a jam, can you help? 
It might be debt. It might be um, a scandal involving small boys or any kind of scandal which um, a member seemed likely to be mixed up in. They'd come and ask if we could help. And if we could, we did. And we would do everything we can because we would store up brownie points. If I mean that sounds a pretty, pretty nasty reason, but it's one of the reasons. Is if we can get a chap out of trouble, then he'll, he'll do as we ask forever more. So Fortescue, who was a government whip from 1970 to 1973, is suggesting that MPs who were thought to be sex offenders of children were not only blackmailed by the whips to vote with the government, but protected by them too. They were willing to help cover up those of gruesome allegations. The claims made in that clip were subsequently investigated in the 2014 inquiry into child sexual abuse linked to Westminster that was unable to find concrete evidence of the involvement of the WHIP's office in covering up abuse. But that doesn't necessarily show what Fortescue said to be untrue. It is notoriously difficult to find detailed records from the WHIP's office. They value secrecy something which was made clear after one of the few occasions when a judge successfully ordered a WHIPS memo to be released. That was in 1996 in relation to the Cash for Access scandal. Following the judge's decision, then-government whip Giles Brandiff wrote in his diary, The question is what to do in future. The chief whip's conclusion is, keep writing notes. He needs the information, so does the PM. But sleep easy, boys. From now on, the notes will be shredded on a regular basis basis. These are clearly a group of operators who do not want to be held to account. Yet while written evidence may be in short supply, the testimony of MPs shows dirty tactics are widespread. In 2014, a Tory MP who was elected in 1992 told The Guardian, they even kept phoning my wife and saying you should tell him to vote with the government. It was quite extraordinary. They would try everything, threats and inducements, saying they knew things that they didn't want to have to make public, implying they would if they had to. With some, it was affairs or things like visits to gay nightclubs. It didn't matter if it wasn't true or was gossip. They still tried it on. What's more, when Westminster was engulfed in the 2017 sexual harassment scandal, Guido Fawkes published this spreadsheet. It was compiled by Tory staffers, and it's of 36 allegations against MPs of inappropriate sexual conduct. At the time, it was assumed by many in Westminster that much of this information was already in the hands of party whips. And speaking to Newsnight, former Ed Miliband advisor Aisha Hazarika said the following, every whip's office will have a big black file on MPs, and that will include bad behaviour, including sexual harassment. Sometimes there has been a feeling the whip's office know there are people doing bad behaviour, whether it's drinking too much or being inappropriate, but they're not actually going to do anything in terms of dis- in terms of disciplining these people. They'll use that information to help them when it comes to leveraging them to vote in a certain way. They want to save these secrets so that they can use them in an instrumental way later. It's not the case if we find out wrongdoing, we'll make that transparent straight away. No, they want to save that because they can use it. Interestingly, the Tory chief whip at the time was Gavin Williamson, who is now rumoured to be in line for a knighthood in exchange for not embarrassing his colleagues with any secrets he may have previously acquired. Williamson is a man who, at the time, liked to be photographed with a whip across his desk, and he also kept a pet tarantula cronus about which he said, 
you have to look at different ways to persuade people to vote with the government. And it's great to have Cronus as part of the team. Some MPs are, of course, making light of it all. After Tory MP William Wragg spoke out about whips blackmailing MPs, Michael Fabricant tweeted the following. If I reported every time I had been threatened by a whip, or if a whip reported every time I had threatened them, the police wouldn't have any time to conduct any other police work. What nonsense from William Wragg. In other words, what's the problem? We blackmail each other all the time. And this isn't the first time Fabricant has intervened in the whipping debate. Here, he made this explainer in 2018. So, is whipping all about discipline? That's not allowed anymore. Instead, it's all about gathering intelligence. Sir Tarquin, as you know, we've got some pretty tricky legislation coming up. Can we count on your support? Well, Michael, support is a big word. Gentle persuasion. But Tarquin, you know how serious this legislation is. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't go through and your vote is crucial, the government could fall and you'll be out of a job. And sometimes, just a little bribery. Tarquin. I can call you Tarquin, can't I? Of course. We think that your principles, your intelligence, means that we would be able, if you could support the government, to put you in the House of Lords. No, it's a matter of principle. Tarquin, if we offer you money, will you support the government? <laughs> Still no. Well, maybe not bribery with cash, but a good whip's office helps keep the show on the road. For his part, Michael Fabricant's doppelganger Boris Johnson has barely commented on the current whipping controversies, but perhaps that's because the PM himself is not immune to blackmailing and threatening those with whom he disagrees. His old boss at the Telegraph, Max Hastings, wrote this about Johnson in 2012. When one of his many sexual affairs was exposed and much trumpeted in the headlines, he telephoned a friend of mine who was then running one of Britain's largest media organisations. Quote, It's utterly disgraceful what your reporters are doing on screen about my private life, spluttered Johnson. It's time you realised that I know all about your private life. If your organisation goes on reporting my affairs like this, you'll be reading all about yours in The Spectator, which was the magazine he then edited. My friend responded, this is Max Hastings' friend, stop a minute, Boris, and think about what you just said. There is a word for it, and it is not a pretty one, blackmail. In a separate article in 2019, Hastings wrote the following, in my own files, I have handwritten notes from our possible next prime minister threatening dire consequences in print if I continued to criticise him. Well, why don't you, I want to see those. I want, I want to see those published. Aaron, I want to know your thoughts on, on Boris Johnson's place in this story. But also, I assume you saw that clip from Michael Fabricant, and I want to know what you think about it. Michael Fabricant tells you so much about how utterly dysfunctional Westminster politics is. The fact that his personality seems to be a matter of, you know, comedy and laughter rather than trepidation and, and, and worry. Uh, you know, he, he's a court jester. And the fact it's done so prominently and, and in public is deeply disturbing. 
But I don't really care about fabricant. The problem is we have an electoral system, which we'll talk about more later, which elevates these people rather than keeps them out. When you have a two-party system, which is based on being a broad tent, by the way, that's a terribly unhealthy thing. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Then inevitably, you have people who are promoted on the basis of discipline, loyalty, ability to intimidate, rather than inspiration, ideas, and believing in democracy. And so I think, look, let's focus on somebody like Fabricant or even Boris Johnson and say, actually, people like this are the symptom of a dysfunctional electoral system rather than a problem in themselves, because they'll go away and more idiots and court jesters will come along in a decade's time. So I think the focus has to be laser-like on electoral reform. Back to basics on this story, though, actually. So how significant do you think this is, that William Ragg has come out and, and talked about the dirty tactics that are used to get Tory MPs to vote in a particular way? And then obviously we've, we've had two others come out and sort of confirm those accounts ever since. Do you think this is a big deal? Do you think this will shake Westminster in any way? It's a massive, massive, massive story. We were talking about this last night, and I think maybe you misunderstood me because there's two stories at work here. And I'm sorry to our audience if they're watching and saying, well, Michael Walker just said this far more eloquently five minutes ago. I'm going to maybe <laughs> relitigate some of the points. There's two stories here. The first is Westminster whip operations are often intimidating, perhaps even engage in actions of questionable legality, etc. Deeply problematic behavior. That's one story. And in a way, you see it from, you know, Fabricant himself and other people saying, well, big deal, it's always been that way. That's somewhat true. It doesn't make it any less of a problem, but it's somewhat true. There is, however, another story, which is the fact that a Tory MP is willing to go on record. And, and by the way, I just want to say this, Michael, William Ragg is 34 years old. I thought he was 45 or something when I saw the pictures of him. And then I go check the guys, you know, he's young. He's a baby. He's a bit older than you. So, yeah, the story for me is the fact that a sitting Tory MP, a sitting Tory MP, not just Wakeford, is willing to go on record and talk about these things. And for me, that spells major problems in terms of Conservative Party party management going forward. Because if you don't have an effective whipping operation, like I say, by virtue of our electoral system, you're a broad church encompassing many different points of view, people that often hate each other, and the media loves to say, oh, Labour, civil war, Tory civil war, they're all terrible, they all can't get on with each other. No, by virtue of first past the post, People who massively disagree with one another are forced and squashed into these incredibly broad tent parties. Not just a problem here, by the way. Look at the US. You'll have a Republican in, who's a moderate Republican. I don't think there's such a thing, but Mitt Romney in the same party as Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders in the same party as Joe Manchin and, and, and you know, Kirsten Cinema. So that's the major issue. And once you lose party management in first past the post, which is often through yes intimidation, you have major problems. And I think for me, Michael, the big story here, if this escalates, is if emails and photos and documentary evidence, an archive of intimidation on the part of the Tory whipping operation is, is exposed, I think that's a circular firing squad for the Conservative Party. I think under those conditions, you can't do party management effectively for one, two years, maybe longer. That's existential. Because First past the post and the big parties we have, Labour, the Tories, they're incredibly weak organisations. They exist for one reason, one reason only. Costs of entry for other parties entering Parliament are very high. It's very difficult just by virtue of how first past the post works. I think once the party management breaks down, you could see more independence, you see more people crossing the floor. It could be a mess. And I think we could be looking at something actually really historic. That's all speculation or deep in the future. But in terms of the immediate context and how that fits with it, I don't see the polling getting any better for the Tories anytime soon, or much better. 
I think May, the May elections will be another major focus point for them. You've obviously got the report coming out next week. So I think, look, keep your eyes peeled. I think you're going to see a lot more of this. And I think actually we're looking at something potentially existential for the party system as it works in this country. You know, it's bigger than just Boris Johnson and and a bit of sleaze and a bit of corruption or he said, she said. Once you have a whipping operation exposed and documented and put in the public eye, Michael, that's never happened before. It's a huge story. And once something like that starts, it's very difficult to stop it. I suppose my suggestion here was that one of the reasons this might not be a massive deal is because the scandals that get really big are when people feel like MPs are taking me for a ride. So Partygate, it was MPs are taking me for a ride. The expenses scandal, it was MPs taking me for a ride. If a load of messages are published which involve MPs being mean about other MPs or being mean to other MPs, I feel like people are going to be quite, this is just elites having arguments with elites. It's nasty people having mm-hmm. arguments with nasty people. I can see that yeah. being something which is seen as, as quite far away and almost irrelevant. Do you not think that's, that's a possible outcome here? I entirely agree with you, Michael, but I don't think the problem is one of sort of public perception and what it means. The consequences are for party management. You know, people may start just ignoring the government whip en masse repeatedly. You can't get legislation through. There may be more defections. There may be just constant public haranguing and effectively an air war against the prime minister. So I think actually the dissolution of discipline within the Tory backbenches, potentially, if this does escalate, I mean, that's the signal we're getting so far. I agree with you. The public don't care. It's not Dominic Cummings. Oh, my God, this big hypocrite media sensation. It's not Allegra Stratton. It's not the emails of Boris Johnson. It's nothing like that. It's a very different kind of crisis. And what it means is that potentially as a government, you can't get much business done. It means you're dysfunctional. What does that mean in terms of re-election? I mean, we don't know. It's pretty dysfunctional as it is. But I think you're looking at a return to a situation where you have like the Theresa May government after 2017. Just You basically don't get any legislation passed. Nothing really happens. You know, civil war within a political party is not productive if you want to actually run a state. But you are right to say it's a different kind of problem for the Conservatives to the Stratton or the Dom Cummings affair, in so much as this is not about public opinion. And you're right, it's very remote from the things that people actually care about, which I'm sure the Prime Minister will try and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat in order to distance himself from the scandal and the crisis and try and sort of mollify and and say, look, this isn't a big deal. Well, actually, if you're trying to run a party at Westminster and you've got no discipline, it's a big deal. Ask Jeremy Corbyn, 2015 to 2019, you can't do your job. There are sort of some consistent differences in sort of like, I suppose, our, our sort of attitude or what our expectations. I tend to always think things will stay, you know, they won't change that radically. You often think they will. Often reality meets somewhere in the middle, often completely somewhere else. One outcome for me here is that you've got MPs making a lot of noises because they don't want to be associated with this very unpopular MP some enemies of Boris Johnson anyway, and they're going to kick up a fuss for a little while. Wakeford wanted to cross the floor anyway because he was going to lose very south. Now seemed like a sort of appropriate time to do it where there was plausible deniability that it wasn't pure opportunism. Ultimately, Boris Johnson is going to survive until the May elections because no one else actually wants to replace him before then. He'll go then. Rishi Sunak will take over. There won't be the same sort of ideological conflict that existed in the Labour Party over the past five years. And the Tory party will essentially pull itself together. Whether it can recover its reputation or whether it can sort of escape being tarnished by the the past few months, that's a different question. But I do feel like, you know, party unity could return if just a few things 
happen. I feel like it's not necessarily as sort of explosive in a in an epochal way as potentially you're suggesting. I wonder what you think of of that possibility. Yeah. So let me clarify what I'm referring to. I'm talking about sort of longer term technological trends. You know, a backbencher now has the ability to retain mm. an archive of information, incriminating information on the people. They have a direct line to the lobby. They can effectively create their own press operation themselves. That's a level of autonomy for backbenchers or just for individual politicians, which didn't exist 20 years ago. So I'm not saying, oh my God, you know, the dam is broken. The f- we're going to get this, this flood of a different kind of politics. What I am saying is these kinds of scandals and historic forms of party management increasingly won't work. And actually, if you look at this in the longer term, Labour as a political party hasn't really had effective party management, arguably, since 2007, since Blair, arguably. It was open season on Brown pretty damn quickly. Disso Ed Miliband, obviously the same regarding Jeremy Corbyn. I don't agree with Keir Starmer, but one thing he's been very good at is imposing ruthless discipline. I mean, we'll see how far that experiment goes. You know, he's only doing one in the polls in the last two months. And I think even his supporters would say that's overwhelmingly because of the government's failures, not because of his unique proclivities as an effective politician. I think the Conservatives, in in terms of party management, look, they were in coalition. I think in many ways that helped with this. It helped Cameron. He could say to his right-wingers, what can I do? We're in government with these people. I'd love to be more to the right, but I have to be more centrist because I've got these people, I've got Nick Clegg and so on to appease. Ultimately, I think that actually helped him. But then you look at Cameron after 2015, within a year, collapse, a problem of party management there. She's got big hitters like Gove, Boris Johnson getting on the Brexit campaign. Same with May after 2017, really struggles to really manage the party effectively. And I think we're seeing something similar now. We thought after 2019, this was kind of gone and you would see an effective organized conservative party in parliament, big majority, doing things it wants to do. You might not agree with the policies, but doing them. And actually, this is going back to historic norm that we saw for several years previous to that. And what I would say is, Michael, when you've got that amount of autonomy for MPs in a system like First Past the Post, they can get to the media when they want. They can do their own press release. They've got Twitter. They've got Instagram. They can organize in ad hoc ways, form interesting kind of ad hoc alliances on an issue by issue basis. I think under those conditions, those technological conditions, going back to my PhD here, I'm not saying this changes politics yesterday or tomorrow, but over the long sweep of history, over the next 10 to 15 years, I think it does mean that first past the post is permanently dysfunctional as a way of of running a country. I just do. You know, historically it was, you have a big tent party, they get a majority, they do what they want. And I think for a number of reasons that, that, that no longer works. Where's the evidence? US and UK. And you know what? For the best part of a decade. So I would say... We're talking about solutions. Let's talk about Porsche representation. Let's talk about primaries. Let's talk about different kind of politics. And I, I think there can be a broad, a broad consensus behind that. You are right to say that, look, I think what the Tories are thinking here is Boris Johnson stays briefly. Polling improves a little bit. You know, they get back within seven or eight points of Labour. They get smashed at the May elections. He probably holds on for another month or two. Their polling is not as bad as now. They're just six, seven points behind. Like you say, get Rishi Sunak in, bit of a bump. You've got the conference, that's September. As long as they're within five points of Labour at the next general election, Linton Crosby will say, we can make mincemeat out of Keir Starmer. I did it with Ed Miliband in 2015. I'll do it with a guy, actually, who by temperament and policy prescription is relatively similar. So I agree with you. And I think Sunak could come in. And I think some of these issues could be smothered back under the blanket for a year or two. But I think it's a long-term problem for Westminster politics. 
I do take that technology point. I hadn't quite realized that was sort of the center of that point. The amount of WhatsApp screenshots we're seeing every day is quite phenomenal. And I think we're probably in the Wild West phase where sort of MPs have got all this technology, but the party management hasn't realized how dangerous it can be. It might be the case that the WhatsApp groups get banned quite quickly for, for MPs of either parties. Next story. In the wake of the storm of blackmail and bullying allegations against the government, former Tory MP Rory Stewart, who stood against Johnson for leader of the party, had these strong words. This is all part of the same system, which is that in the end, what's been built are these machines, which are about winning and loyalty. And the whips will do all they can to try to defend the prime minister. And it's a very ruthless uh, often humiliating process where MPs who may have come from ordinary life, they may have been people who in previous lives were journalists or business people or army officers, they end up in parliament and they are put through this extraordinary hazing process of which the whips are part of trying to enforce loyalty to the leader. And this, I think, is dangerous because it takes away from the question of people voting with their consciences and trying as best they can to work out what's best for the country. And I think that's happening here again now. My experience with WIPs is that the British system is very much set up. It's a sort of elective dictatorship. A prime minister comes in, doesn't matter whether it's uh, Tony Blair or Gordon Brown or David Cameron or Theresa May or Boris Johnson. And the WIPs job is to deliver their will and their manifesto. And they will do it largely by using promotion. One of the problems in British government is that the reason that people often become ministers or don't become ministers is not on the basis of their knowledge or their skill at doing a job. It's based on their loyalty, whether or not they do what the whips want. Now, that's fine for getting the government business through. And there's an argument for that. People want to get government business through effectively. But it does mean that you end up with ministers who are often not very well suited for the jobs that they're occupying. Aaron, Rory Stewart there is talking about some of the flaws in Britain's electoral system that you sometimes talk about that you seem interested in. Are you, are you on the same page as, as him on this? Is he right that the system as we currently have it makes Britain an elected dictatorship? Well, yeah, that was a term first used by Lord Hailsham, I think, in 86 or something like that, the mid-1980s, referring to the Margaret Thatcher premiership, which was to say, because of our, our political system, our electoral system, our political system, you vote for a political party, the party with the most seats in parliament has a prime minister at its apex. And that prime minister effectively has presidential, quasi-presidential powers. Now in the US, those powers are checked by independent um, judiciary. We kind of have that here, more so in recent years, but not like the US. And of course, you have separation of powers, you have Congress. A bit different presidential system, of course, you know, in, in France quite distinct to what we have here, which is a parliamentary system. The problem with our parliamentary system in the last several decades is more and more power is concentrated in the person of the prime minister. And that's where we talk about an elective dictatorship, whether that's in the cabinet or with the prime minister, under a certain set of conditions, which is they have a large majority. So you could say Tony Blair, 97 to 2005, elective dictatorship. Like I say, the term really was generated in response to Thatcher in the 80s. Similar with now, Boris, you know, majority of 80. I mean, I, I think those are, the, those are the same sort of conditions. So initially, those words were used in regard to our political system, where we don't have a separation of powers. I don't want to talk about separation of powers and, and, and whether or not that's a good thing. You could say in the, in the British system, it means that governments can enact decisive change, like the NHS after 1945, like Margaret Thatcher's sort of privatization and market-oriented solutions in the 80s, like getting, quote-unquote, Brexit done. So it does have some advantages, some disadvantages are, and some disadvantages are you, you are giving the government of the day extraordinary power and very few 
ways of inhibiting them. I mean, we saw one, you know, this week, which is of course the House of Lords with the policing bill, but ultimately that's that's not particularly robust. Now, Roy Stewart's saying that alongside, well, we need a, a electoral reform or we need to change the kinds of people in politics and get to the top of politics, ones that aren't based on on loyalty and backing up a political project like Boris Johnson to the hilt, despite breaking any manner of principles and, and political sort of ideals they professed previously to hold. I, I think it's dangerous to say that's a dictatorship. I don't think it's a dictatorship. I think it's just, disfe- it's just dysfunctional Westminster politics. And like I say, I think that's the future of first past the post. So I think you've got separate criticisms going on here. I think, you know, we don't have sufficient checks and balances. You can say that's not really democratic. I get that. Particularly when, look, you can have a 60% turnout. One of the parties gets mid-40s of that 60%, and yet they can do what the hell they like. I think that's more of a sort of dictatorial state of affairs than the fact you have a disciplinarian, vindictive, often malicious whipping operation underpinning both parties. So I wouldn't call it a dictatorship. No, I think if you're going to use that word in regards to aspects of the British system, it applies, I think, arguably, but but not here. I just think this is a 19th century way of doing politics, backroom dealings, intimidation, which in the 21st century no longer work. But I suppose the relevancy of something like electoral reform or proportional representation is that then you can have those debates out in the open, because the issue is if you've only got two parties, if the whole government is from one party, then the prime minister gets to offer people promotions based on whether or not they they vote with the government. If you had a coalition government where it's the Tories and UKIP or Labour and the Greens or whatever, they could have that debate out in the open. You could be, if the Green Party bloc decides to disagree with the Labour Party bloc, that doesn't mean that any one Green MP is never going to get promoted to have a decent job in their life. So you can see how that PR would undermine the power of, of both the, the party leader and the whips in the back office. So I think that that probably would solve some of those problems. Labour's shadow chancellor has given an interview to the Financial Times reassuring its readership that Labour is pro-business. The article is mostly quite predictable. She says Labour is the party of business as well as workers and that it would be responsible with the public finances. Nothing you won't have heard before, even in the John McDonnell era. She did give one comment though, which I think was absolutely grotesque. So the FT report that Reeves said that a drop in Labour membership, which has reduced the party's income, was a price worth paying for shedding unwelcome supporters and removing the, quote, stain of anti-Semitism from the party. She says, membership in my constituency is falling and that's a good thing. She goes on, people had left who should never have joined the Labour Party. They never shared our values. Now that was published, that story, that interview was published on the same day a literal Tory MP was welcomed onto the Labour benches. Apparently he does share Labour values, but the people who joined Labour to fight for well-funded public services and a peaceful foreign policy, they don't. Of course, I say the people who joined Labour for that, there'll be many people who joined before Corbyn who's, who've, who've left because they've been upset by various things Keir Starmer has done. And she's essentially calling that 150,000 people a bunch of anti-Semites. She's an overpromoted bureaucrat, Michael. She's a fool. I can't see her being. I can't see her being the the chancellor. I mean, if you, you saw the interviews that she gave yesterday on ITV, on the BBC, she can't talk. She she literally can't talk. She's completely dislikable. Not not oh, they're not affable. They're not approachable. She's dislikable. She's hectoring. She's moralizing in the worst way. And actually, I think she is herself a very bad person. What what kind of individual? What kind of individual takes 150,000 of their fellow citizens, 150,000, 
strangers, people they don't know, and say they're all racists. You know, the Conservative Party has 200,000 members or whatever. I wouldn't say they're all racists. I don't know them. I'm sure there's some great people there. I disagree with them politically. But that 150,000 figure in the Labour Party, Michael, you're thinking of school head teachers, nurses, retail workers, retirees, care workers, bringing up their kids, paying their bills. And they wanted to go canvassing campaign to help Labour get elected for a few years. And now they have this, this person talking to the Financial Times, completely detached from reality, libeling them en masse. And this is viewed as pragmatic and sensible and uh, grown-up politics. I think it says a great deal about her, Michael. You know, with Keir Starmer, I, I don't know the guy. You know, I don't know his moral compass. And there is an argument that he does what he does because he has a certain destination and he'll, he'll be ruthless and do anything it takes to get there. I don't agree with it, but I can get that. This is just absurd. Why, why would you speak like that about 150,000 people you've never met? I think it takes quite a unique personality. And I think fundamentally, she, she, she's going to actually face some, some consequences for that. You can't just label people like that in such a dramatic, disgusting way. This is the same person who said, we've got a Labour family. I'm all about the Labour fa family, Labour values. Like you say, the same day that she welcomes the Conservative Party MP onto the Labour benches, she's saying 150,000 people who helped her and her colleagues get elected are racist trash and scumbags. Come on. I think it really does say a great deal about the content of her character, and it's not good. I mean, obviously, I think it's morally repugnant. I think it is also electorally stupid. Like, I've been more relaxed about Labour letting that Tory MP cross the floor than many people on the left, because I say we're in a first-past-the-post system, you have to be a really big tent, and it's good to give an elite cue that people who have quite diverse politics are welcome under this umbrella. I think there are downsides, I agree there are downsides, but I think that that is one of the, the upsides of it. But this interview, which is given on exactly the same day, is the precise opposite. I think it's fine for Rachel Reeves to come up and say, oh, well, if 150 people have left, look, if they've decided that they don't agree with the direction of the party strong enough to remain a member, I think that's unfortunate, but it's fine. We'll move on. We're still building a successful electoral machine. Look at us in the polls. It's great. She could say that. She doesn't have to say, oh, it's a tragedy that these people have left. All she has to say is, fine, they've made their decision. Presumably we have different politics, but that's allowed. I hope they still vote Labour at the next election. No, instead, she said, these are racist. These are people who should be nowhere near my political party. These people do not share my values. They are disgusting. And that is not how you build a winning coalition, because it just loses so many more people than it gains. Because the people who she is talking about there, they read that and they really care. The people who she is trying to impress here read that and they don't give a damn. No one's like, oh, I'm going to vote Labour because they were really horrible to their previous members. No, it doesn't work like that. And I think a good example of this is the comparison between Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. So when Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders, her line was, and actually in her, in her campaign against Bernie Sanders as well, he's a sexist, they're all Bernie bros, the people who support Bernie Sanders, they're not welcome in electoral politics really. And that built up so much bad blood against her that it really undermined her, her campaign, I think. Joe Biden, in contrast, lost to Bernie Sanders, but straight afterwards they had a sort of policy commission and essentially his whole line throughout the primaries weren't that Bernie Sanders is a sexist, Bernie Sanders is a racist, Bernie Sanders is a danger to America. He just said, look, I've got different politics to the guy. I'm a centrist. He's on the left. Vote for me if you like centrist policies. Vote for him if you like left policies. And that's the kind of thing where you can build 
a coalition, people who supported Bernie. Many of them were, were willing to go and campaign for Biden because they're like, oh, well, fair play. He doesn't have my politics, but he did win. And he didn't try and admonish me, smear me in public, which is what Hillary Clinton did. And it's exactly what Rachel Reeves is doing now. And what Keir Starmer has done many times. I think it's disastrous as well as being grotesque. Of course, Rachel Reeves' values are well known. Her values, the values that she shares. Under Ed Miliband's leadership, she served as Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, where her job was to interrogate and challenge Ian Duncan Smith. As you will know, IDS implemented the most brutal regime of benefits cuts this country has ever seen. But instead of pushing back strongly against austerity, Reeves argued it didn't go far enough. In a 2013 article in The Guardian, Reeves said, Nobody should be under any illusions that they are going to be able to live a life on benefits under a Labour government. She said that Labour would not let the long-term unemployed, quote, linger, unquote, on benefits. That 2013 interview was followed by another two years later, where she said, We are not the party of people on benefits, we don't want to be seen and we're not the party to represent those who are out of work. I mean, Rachel Reeves sounded pretty reactionary in 2013 and 2015. Do you see any signs that on policy terms she's, she's changed? Well, look, Michael, policy only goes so far. If somebody is so completely free of scruples and, and principle and ethics, oh, look, she wrote this policy paper talking about how we should run deficits to build infrastructure. She's calling people who have the misfortune of not being able to look after themselves scumbags who have no place in the Labour Party. I mean, what the hell are you talking about? What level are you talking about here? It's like somebody says, well, oh, you know, this person, they agree with me that actually we should have an increase in corporation tax. I mean, they also believe in child slave labour, but we can work together on this issue. No, there's a fundamental problem with that person. And by the way, Michael, I don't think this is being raised. It's not in the show notes. In 2015, she was one of, I think, 19 MPs, Rachel Reeves, who had her credit card suspended. In Parliament, she had four grand on it, she hadn't paid it off. These are the exact same politicians who don't pay their bills, don't settle up, who call regular, ordinary working class people feckless, scroungers. And by the way, she's the one who's the fiscal conservative. I'm very responsible with my figures and facts and numbers. You were £4,000 overdrawn with your credit card. <laughs> Parliament had to close it. You can't be that responsible. I, I'm going to help business. Yeah, the same person says, I'm going to help business. You think losing 150,000 members in a membership organization is smart business? My God, I don't want you in charge of my tax. You think I want you at number 11 Downing Street? You think I want you running the, the treasury? Jesus Christ. It'd be like Mr. Bean. No, thank you. <laughs> I did not know that about the credit card. That's very entertaining considering she's always talking, you can trust us with your money. And she got a credit card cancelled for... I feel like we should, maybe shouldn't go into too much detail on that. I feel like I need to look that one up. But do, do MPs get a credit card from, from the House of Commons? Is that how it works? Amazing. Interesting, they do. Aaron, it's been a pleasure being joined by you on this Friday evening. Michael, it's been my pleasure. Let's wrap up there. If you do want to support what we do, go to navarromedia.com forward slash support. We really appreciate it. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.